Thank you, Alex, very much. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy to be teased about the hoodie. It's now such a tradition with me. I was, I was hoping it wouldn't be too, too warm today so that I couldn't wear one. Um, so this uh, topic of the Competition Commission Market Inquiry is obviously a much, uh, much heated one. Uh, there's a lot of attention paid to it. Um, not to raise your expectations, but I'm not going to cover much of the technical detail um, of the process of the Commission um, or of the submissions themselves, but really just based on you know, the kind of reading that we've done and all, all of the submissions that are put into the public domain, just give you a little bit of a sense of the kind of things that we saw there. Um, and it's a bit reflective and qualitative. Um, it's also quite short, so we'll catch up on some time, Alex. So there were 66 um, publicly released submissions that amounted to just over 7,000 pages. Um, when the submissions were received and the, and the, the commission um, released the information, they said there were 15,000 pages, which leads us to the conclusion that there must be 8,000 or so pages that were confidentially submitted and weren't put into the public domain that we haven't had sight of. Um, so uh, we, it's, it's not clear, you know, you don't know what you don't know. We don't know exactly how much um, of that is accurate. We don't know about the 15,000 pages. We know about the, the 7,000 and we've read most of those, not all of them, it was quite an exhaustive process um, and certainly absolutely fascinating. In terms of the split of pages, just to give you a little bit of a sense, I needed to do something with numbers in. Um, <clears throat> the, the, this is the, the split of pages by, we categorized the submissions into different types, so hospitals and professionals, etc. So hospitals were responsible for just over 50% of all of the pages submitted. Um, professionals, uh, that's the doctors and specialists, 12%, uh, medical schemes, 11%, administrators, 8%, uh, medicine and related companies, another 6%, allies, 4%, path and road, 3% each. Civil society, where we included unions and those kind of um, organizations, 1%, and brokers, 0%. They, they, they did submit something that's obviously just a rounding issue. <clears throat> But um, what was interesting to me, just you know, why, why I guess we wanted to put this up, obviously within each of the submissions, many of them comment on other parts of the industry. But it is interesting to question you know, uh, how representative that is of expenditure in the medical scheme space. So hospitals overrepresented slightly, um, probably because they're you know, going to receive the most attention. Interestingly for me, it was that brokers are underrepresented. Um, they are mentioned in some of the submissions, but generally speaking, I was quite surprised um, with the, the lightness with, with, within which, uh, with which brokers and marketing and distribution in particular were, were, were raised in the submissions. Civil society also not particularly well represented. Pardon me, although there, were quite a, there was a long tail of individual submissions um, of either you know, individuals who felt hard done by um, in the healthcare system or, or doctors, individual doctors who were, who were felt hard done by. This is the top 15 submissions by the number of pages, Netcare had the largest submission by some way, um, then Mediclinic, then the South African um, Private Practice Forum, Discovery Health, the Administrator, the BHF, Life Healthcare, the SA Med, uh, that was an interesting one, then the Radiological Society, Isoliso, um, uh, Best Med, then the Discovery Health Medical Scheme, they submitted separately, um, and then the Department of Health are in there somewhere, and so is MedScheme. Uh, and there was one large, um, one large medical practice, a breast cancer, breast cancer center, and the South African Chiropractic Association cracked the top 15. So they had a, a lot to say as well. Now, I mean, it was a lot to read. I'm sure uh, some of you may have read all of it. Uh, a few of you may have read, uh, a lot of you may have read some of it. Um, and what was fascinating was just the wide-ranging nature of the commentary. So 
There was a lot of discussion about the underlying causes of the problems in our system. Um, there was a lot of discussion on the symptoms, even though they weren't necessarily categorized as such. Um, there were some people who tried to put forward diagnoses for the, the problems that we have in some people. Some of the submissions tried to put forward cures. So a lot of the, the better submissions touched on all of these um, and were able to delineate them. Many of them weren't. Many of them focused on one particular sort of point and, and, uh, and focused on that and belabored those, those points. Um, but very, very fascinating to see uh, the big picture from all those different perspectives. There was also a wide ranging nature of evidence provided. So uh, don't measure the, the lines, but broadly speaking, a uh, significant amount of anecdotal evidence, lots of individual stories, lots of um, individual um, experiences. This happened in this year when I was negotiating with this particular party, so not that much from a systematic evidence point of view. Um, there was quite a fair amount of international literature that was referenced or annexed um, to the, the submissions. Um, what we found there that was interesting was there was not that much by way of um, analysis of international data. There was some, but not a lot. Um, but usually uh, it was international reports that were, uh, that were you know, annexed and referenced in particular paragraphs. And of course the danger there is when you're referencing a 350-page you know, OECD report from 2006 that you miss the context um, within which that whole report is, um, is written. So uh, you know, those things have to, be, have to be taken into account quite carefully. And then there was a lot of local literature that was referenced, um, research that had been put in the public domain either by the council or someone like um, Alex or, or, or uh, firms that had done their own research or Econics, for instance, or Heather McLeod, you know, where those bodies of research are out in the public domain, that, those were referenced significantly. And um, a, lot of, a lot of the submissions contained their own analyses based on their own data, whether it was a medical scheme or a hospital group or a doctor group. There was a fair amount of, um, of, of introspection and analysis based on whatever data the particular submitter had in their hand. But some questions arise here. So when it comes to analysis, are those analyses replicable? Um, were the submitters able to distinguish between correlation and causality? What was the relevance and applicability of the international research? Uh, we know from some of our own work trying to compare South Africa to international countries, um, it's, it's very difficult. It's possible, um, but it's, you, you really, really have to pay attention. What about the appropriateness of the analysis? So is it asking the right question? This is a fundamental thing that we, we know well as actuaries, um, but, uh, but, but maybe some others are not so well trained to really think about the question. What is the question we're trying to answer? And that very, has a very strong effect on how you approach the analysis. And then, not, I suppose not surprisingly, there was a fair amount of conflicting evidence where one party would ascribe increases over time to a particular factor and another party would ascribe it to another factor, all, again, based on their own particular perspective. And this is the kind of uh, synopsis. Uh, so everybody is looking at the same industry from a different point of view, um, with different limitations on what they can see because of where they are in the industry, their own perspective. It's, a, it's an issue of perspective. We see this a lot even in our day-to-day -day work in terms of providers versus funders. It really, really is difficult to get a holistic perspective. Um, and that was certainly borne out in the, the Competition Commission submissions. Not only differing perspectives, but also significantly varying ideologies. Um, uh, and this was, and I'm going to come to this point again right at the, at the very end of the presentation. <clears throat> you know, the, the concepts um, which we had a little bit of a debate about this morning, I guess, of mutuality versus solidarity. 
Should uh, the pooling of healthcare funds or funds for the procurement of healthcare services, should they be in a for-profit or not-for-profit environment? What are the appropriate governance structures for these things? Should we allow market mechanisms to, to prevail in healthcare? Um, when there's health, a lot of health economic literature to, show that, to say that um, uh, markets don't work particularly well in healthcare. Should the markets be over-regulated? And, and those in favour of the market would, would cite you know, much regulatory failure all around the world in healthcare and other markets. Those in favour of regulation would say, yes, but healthcare can't function as a market for these and these reasons. So significant ideological differences. Um, a lot of um, speaking about uh, outcomes and clinical versus financial motivation. What is the main driving force making decisions, either for efficiency or in the market or from a regulatory point of view? And what should the predominant system be? Is, it the, is the burden on, on, on government, on the public system, or is it on the private system? What role does the private system play? And they're very, very strong and quite outspoken views, particularly in light of you know, the NHI debate, the ANC Health Plan, the Polycone Conference. Um, significant um, ideological differences still exist and are articulated in the, the submissions. The difficulty there is those ideological differences drive recommendations and drive proposals for cures for the system. So, for instance, on the one hand, you'll have some submissions that say, the current system, uh, there's, there's too much inequity. Um, it's, it's not tolerable for society, for the South African society, to have such a degree of inequity. Um, therefore, we will oppose um, any reforms that entrench the system, such as mandatory membership and the risk equalization fund, etc. And there are people that articulate those views in a very strong manner in the submissions. On the other hand, um, you know, there are very strong views for a, a stronger market mechanism where the argument is, yes, the market for healthcare is not perfect, um, but the solution is not to hop, skip, and jump all the way to regulation. This, there may be a, a long continuum in between um, to overcome the information asymmetries and the other faults in, in the healthcare market before we, we concede to an overly regulated market. So these are the kind of debates um, that we had. Although when I say debates, uh, they're not particularly well articulated as debates in the submissions. The, a particular point of view is put across, and in another submission, another particular point of view is across. So this is going to be the challenge for the Commission to try to make sense and take a, a, as independent a view as they can um, to balance out these different um, perspectives and ideologies. So this is, I guess, what gives rise to the next stage of the process, which is that there's a need for more, more diagnostic work. So for some of your clients, you would, have, um, you would have already received the data requests from the Competition Commission and scratched your head and wondered where we're going to get data going back 16 or 20 years uh, for every claim line, for every clinical code. You know, taking into account scheme amalgamations, hospital amalgamations, I mean, it's virtually impossible, if not actually impossible. Um, so I guess the, there's a bit of a good luck sentiment there for them to A, get the data, and B, be able to do anything with the data once they get it, because there'll be the same uh, methodological uh, and perspective differences in that data if it does manage to come through. Um, and uh, it'll be, of course, voluminous. So, uh, I mean, we're not exactly sure what data they will get in the end and how they're going to collate it and make sense of it when there'll be differing sets of data between a hospital and a medical scheme on, you know, what constitutes a hospital admission, etc. We know even from interacting with that on a day-to-day -day basis for things like alternative reimbursement models, it's not as cut and dried as you might think. Um, so there's a huge amount, an enormous amount of technical work for them to do. Um, but that may be the only way they can make head or tail of the different perspectives um, and the different analyses and the different uh, diagnoses put forward by the submissions that they have.
So looking at the submissions, um, there are different ways we could classify them, and I'm just going to talk through a few stakeholders and themes here today. Um, but uh, again, just trying to you know, distill down the content of these submissions, which were written, some of them tried to follow the theories of harm structure, some of them followed no structure at all. Um, so quite difficult to you know, think about the submissions and distill down the ideas into some kind of reasonable framework. Um, this, is the, this is the way that we looked at it. We looked at uh, different stakeholders, which would include medical schemes, hospitals, administrators, managed care organizations, um, diagnostic uh, practices, specialists, GPs, medicines, devices, allied health, etc. Each of the different actors, um, patients. Um, then key emergent uh, themes, which, uh, and there were, some, there, were, there were certainly some consistent themes that came through. Concentration, market power, price levels and inflation perverse incentives, supply-induced demand, the medical arms race, price-setting interventions, and then particular issues raised by the Competition Commission, cost drivers, market distortions, barriers to entry, expansion, access, regulation, etc. I don't need to read it verbatim. Um, just triggered a, a particular thought in my mind um, that I should have mentioned on the public versus private um, discourse. So the fascinating, one fascinating area um, that the, the, from what we can tell, the, the panel is going to have to deal with is their mandate. Their mandate, coming from the Competition Commission, is to look at the private market and the level of competition in the private market and understanding if there are any barriers or systems or structures or market conduct that undermine effective competition in the private market. That's the extent of their mandate. They have no mandate to talk about public health care. They have no mandate to talk about the overall system and the overall equity in the system. Um, and this is quite, uh, they made this very clear in the briefing sessions and on our interactions with them. Um, but, and this is like heavily articulated in some of the submissions that's bemoaned in the Department of Health submission, for instance, and in the Casati submission, saying that, you know, it's, what we're talking about here is healthcare, we're talking about Section 27, we're talking about the right to health. You can't confine your analysis to this point. But the problem is, from a regulatory point of view, that is their only prerogative is to look at the the private system and the function of the competition, the function of com competition in the private sector. So this is going to be a big conundrum I think they face at the time that we're in, thinking about NHR reform, etc. Um, it's going to, I think there's still some fireworks to come um, as they get into the data and try to come up with some diagnoses and analysis and some recommended cures. So I'm only going to look at these very quickly. Um, we're going to look quickly at medical schemes and hospitals, um, the themes of concentration and market power. And then I'm going to talk about the three sort of balancing act items of price, quality, and utilization. So let's, from a key stakeholder point of view, obviously the medical schemes are a key stakeholder. They pool all the funds, and uh, they use those funds to pay for healthcare services. Um, the kinds of things that were spoken about there were competition, uh, relationships, and a regulatory framework. Um, competition there uh, between open schemes for members. So again, this particular point, I would say, was underrepresented um, in terms of how important it is for the functioning of the market in terms of competition. If we read through the submissions, this, for me, this particular item was not given nearly enough attention. How, 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 what, how what the arrangement with the brokers is, how, um, how marketing works, how, like, what is the state of competition? Are there unfair advantages to competition? This was a very underrepresented topic for me. Um, the relationship, the competition between schemes and insurers, something we debated this morning, is there a level playing field or not? Um, and then between administrators for schemes, is, you know, are, there, are there conduct issues, are there market structure issues, 
Um, and these were some of the points that were debated. The key relationships that were discussed were um, uh, amongst providers, administrators, and brokers, with administrators and grouping managed care organizations there. But there was, again, some discussion, but not an enormous amount of discussion, given that that's quite a key topic on the basis of engagement. Um, are there any uh, vertical collusions? Are there any horizontal collusions? Um, there was quite there's less mud slung there than I would have expected, um, which I suppose is a good thing. Everybody was mature about what they wrote. Well, not everybody, but most most uh, most people. Um, but uh, yeah, again, there there was definitely some skirting around some of the more controversial issues that could have been raised, um, and some more could have been said about the relationships. But I guess it's enough still um, for the the commission to get their teeth into it. And then the regulatory framework. So. Uh, our favorite hobby, hobby horses, the REF and compulsory membership was um, raised where we expected it to be raised, um, that these things are important from a, a solidarity point of view, from a sustainability point of view. Um, it was counterbalanced by some of the other, as I say, uh, prevailing ideology, which said that no, these things entrench an inequitous system and so we won't support them. There was some debate about the finer detail like solvency and uh, risk pooling at an option level and sustainability at an option level. Some of the, uh, not more minor points, but um, uh, not as big as ref and compulsion. And then there was quite a lot of talk about PMBs and the role of PMBs. The fact that they're hospice-centric, um, the at-cost issue. So this received a huge amount of attention. Um, again, to my mind, and something I spoke about at the BHF, I don't know, three, four years ago, probably too much attention if you trade that off against something like ref and compulsion, but still a burning issue for schemes day to day, um, that they, they, there is the risk of having to, pay, um, having to pay these invoices at cost in the current climate. So that received quite a lot of attention. <clears throat> Thinking about hospitals, um, as a, in the earlier slide, I mean, they put a huge amount of information into the public domain, for the, some of them for the first time, which I think is, is, again, fascinating just from an institutional record point of view for the industry looking back and going forward. Um, lots of discussion about um, the relationships uh, between the groups um, and their key relationships. Um, there, was, there was a little bit of a bun fight between the um, acute hospitals and the day hospitals to say, again, there's an unfair playing field and the, the acute hospitals have played the game in a certain way. So that was an interesting debate to, to follow. Um, again, relationships. What are the relationships between hospitals, schemes, administrators, and specialists? Um, this was, I'd say, probably fairly debated, although the complexities and the nuances did escape um, some of the submissions. Um, are hospitals negotiating with individual schemes? Um, are they negotiating with managed care organizations collectively for some schemes? Is that fair? Is that not fair? Um, there was, a, there was, it was quite interesting to read the, the way that some of the administrators positioned themselves either as the biggest or the second biggest, and it was a big debate about how James was counted. Um, so it was quite fascinating to see, again, the different perspectives about the way that that data was reflected. Um, and then what hospitals, uh, what relationships do hospitals have with specialists, um, which is certainly a hobby horse for some of the, the critics of the system. Um, are, they, is there an, are there relationships untoward? Are there subsidized rents? Are there referral fees? Uh, are there incentives uh, to keep the hospitals full, etc.? That did receive some debate. And then what received a, a significant amount of debate was um, the market concentration, the three groups. Um, do they have market power? Are they the price makers in the market? 
um, and do they bully you know the, the medical schemes in the negotiating room um, and not give them any alternatives and push these higher than inflation price increases on them um, there was some discussion of supply induced demand not a lot um, but some uh, it received some attention maybe reflecting that it's quite a complex topic um, to get into it has many many different nuances Emil touched on one or two of the points um, this morning but it did receive um, at least some attention on the on the issue of concentration and market power um, again there was a lot of debate um, about well which which parts of the market are there market power in um, a lot of that attention went to the hospitals um, some to rad and path more to pathology than radiology I guess um, and there were differing views on this for specialists and doctors so while there, there's not a, a dominating market group of specialists let's say they scattered around they operate in some groups but largely as independents um, because of the scarcity and because of the regional dominance um, this left significant market power also extremely difficult to coordinate among specialists and there was quite a lot of lament about um, the inability to contract the specialists and, and create specialist networks etc and there was some different points of view there about whether that's because of PMBs and the PMBs at cost, so why should a specialist join a network uh, if he can opt out and bill at cost anyway? There's no real incentive. Um, th there's no threat of a specialist losing much volume because of the scarcity, and so uh, difficult, um, difficult to coerce uh, specialists to join a network. There was some debate about the reasons for such concentration. Um, sometimes barrier to entry, uh, either economic or regulatory. Um, and this, funny enough, goes way back to Kenneth Arrow's work on barriers to entry uh, that leads to some of the distortions in the healthcare market, even from a professional point of view, you're selecting particular people with particular training, only those people can provide medical advice, which on its own naturally limits competition. Obviously, it's a good thing, because you want to meet certain minimal uh, clinical and safety standards, um, but it does distort a market in some kind of way. Um, and then... Is there any anti-competitive behavior specifically? And this is really, I guess, where the, the commission would take a keen interest, although they promise not to persecute anybody through the commission market inquiry. They would simply report them to the tribunal, and then who knows what would happen there. And then the consequences. So if there is market power and concentration, what happens to bargaining power, the inability to develop networks and DSPs, as I said, price setting, price making, price taking, this was quite hotly debated. Um, and there was some debate about uh, the non-price power. So, for instance, holding on to data. Or that this, is, this is an exercise of power, that we don't have to give you this data if we don't want to. <coughs> uh, one of the other key themes were perverse incentives. Are there perverse incentives? So from a reimbursement point of view, the much uh, maligned fee-for-service was discussed at length and that it drives utilization. Um, the fact that PMBs um, are, are at risk of being paying at, paid at cost because of Regulation 8 was discussed in many, many of the medical scheme submissions <coughs> and defended by some of the provider submissions, as you might expect. Um, there was a fair amount of discussion on coding and billing, which you, you feel is uh, were, were written by those quite close to the heart of it from a technical and admin point of view, uh, from both the provider and the administrator side because of the state of chaos out there, that there haven't been any new codes for who knows how many years. Um, very difficult. There's no ownership. There's no regulatory process for it. There's no recognized structure for it. We're all sort of living um, in the default of a 2006 code structure plus a few years of inflation. And there, uh, there was general consensus. It was one of the few areas where there was consensus 
in the submissions, that there needs to be some kind of common uh, updated, maintained billing structure, not prices, but structure, where new codes could be discussed and agreed um, amongst the industry. There was some, again, some lamenting of unbundling, unbundling and upcoding, um, and that this was some cause for increases in cost over time. The relationships with hospitals and specialists and hospitals and path labs and specialists and path labs were, were debated. Um, and then there was some debate about group practices and employment of doctors. So this is a, another, another polarizing point. Um, it's quite interesting that, that there's at the same time um, that you know, Porter's article about value and integrated practice units is getting so much airtime and everybody's adopting that kind of language. <clears throat> It would be impossible for us from a regulatory point of view to have that kind of structure because of the HPCSA's prohibitions on group multidisciplinary practices. Um, so, I mean, we really are in a little bit of a quagmire there along across all of the regulatory structures, both the HPCSA, um, the, the Medical Schemes Act, the demarcation, NHI, etc. There really, really are a lot of um, boxes that need to be ticked for us to make progress on some of these um, innovations. Excuse me. <clears throat> and then quality and outcomes received, I would say, it's fair amount of attention. There was a lot of complaining that there's not a good amount of um, quality and outcome data um, in the industry. Uh, I, th I think it's just one of those things that takes a long time to invest in. If we think about administrations, the way they were initially developed, they were designed to collect premiums, uh, maintain membership, and pay claims. And that's all they were designed for. They were not designed to measure the outcome of managed care, which is another point that received some attention, and they were not designed to measure the quality of care delivered by those by the providers that they're paying. Um, now, this on its own contributes to market failure. There's a famous Nobel Prize winning paper by George Akerlof, 1970, called The Market for Lemons, where he, he looks at a, a second-hand car market uh, where there's no information on quality, or there's an information asymmetry on quality, um, and he, he he argues, and he won the Nobel Prize, I'm not saying that that makes him right, but it's a good indication, uh, that this leads to a decline in quality in a market structured like that over time without information on quality and without a market to correct that. So in order for a market to function properly, it needs information. So if price is the only factor, then price is the indicator, and you should get a price-efficient market. But in healthcare, there should be, it should be about value, uh, which incorporates both price and quality. And the, the fact that we don't have good publicly available data on quality is an issue, and it was, again, much bemoaned in the submissions. Um, and that's coupled with an agency problem, um, the, and it's coupled with the market, uh, market power and holding onto data problem. And that's true for an individual doctor as it is for a, for a hospital, as it is for an administrator. <clears throat> Who is accountable for these health outcomes? Is it the doctor? Is it the hospital? Um, and these were, these were some of the things that were debated. How should they be measured? What should be measured? Um, how should they be reported? Who should get the data? Should we be able to contract using quality? Uh, these are some of the themes. And then the role of regulation. Um, there were some comments about the, the regulations being overly stifling in terms of forcing schemes to do particular things, minimum benefits, etc. And, uh, and, and some comment about the lack of regulation, for example, on quality and outcomes, um, and that the, the, there wasn't enough compulsion within the regulations for providers um, to, to cough up, um, 
cough up quality data. Uh, on that particular point, um, there were there were some inputs that uh, that pointed out that there was the regulations that we have at the moment are unbalanced. That uh, it's only really the insurers, the medical schemes that are that are regulated, and suppliers, providers, hospitals, doctors, etc., are extremely lightly regulated. Really, only by the National Health Act, um, and there should be um, you know greater supervision, appropriate supervision of healthcare facilities. I guess the Office of Health Standards and Compliance will get there eventually but it was one of the topics that was discussed. And then on to cure. So, <clears throat> and and if, we, if we try to think about the kinds of things that need to be fixed in the system, the real the nuts and bolts, um, touches on, on some of the things that e Emil mentioned earlier. So price is an issue. Are prices right, number one? There was very little discussion actually about the normative level of prices. There was a lot of discussion about inflation, and this is how much medical, excuse me, Medical scheme contributions have been going up above inflation, and this is how much claims have been going up, and sometimes even prices going up above inflation. But there was very, very little normative work um, to say, well, what should, it, what should a day in a hospital cost? What should a specialist consultation cost? Now, admittedly, that's incredibly difficult to do. Um, but, uh, I mean, from a, if, if you were asking me from a competition commission point of view, that's quite important, because if the base is wrong, then the inflation number is irrelevant. There was a lot of discussion about the Competition Commission ruling in 2003-2004, and some of the submissions enjoyed sort of throwing that back at the Commission to say, you see, we told you so. Uh, it's all your fault. We were all getting along just fine, and you came and messed it up. Um, so there was, some, there was some talk about that. Um, there was talk about separating coding and pricing. So if we can't get back into full collective bargaining, at least let us get together and form a consistent coding structure. Um, and then there was some debate about balance billing, and trying to get a handle of out-of-pocket expenditure, which is a, a big mystery for us. We have a good handle on, you know, rejected claims, but we don't know what claims aren't submitted. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a big, it's a big blind spot. Um, quality, again, uh, there was a lot of conversation about that we need uh, uh, significant and transparent quality reporting. Um, and even there, there's some nervousness about working together as an industry um, to put uh, that together and almost a plea for a mandate and allowance from the Commission to allow the industry to work together with, um, with itself and, uh, to, to, to develop some of these things. On utilization, from an actuarial point of view, there was certainly a lot of talk about risk equalization fund and mandatory membership and, interestingly, alternative reimbursement. So, it, again, probably received not too much attention other than to say fee-for-service is bad and alternative reimbursement is good. And then a few paragraphs later, um, there was a, 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 a lament about um, you know, not getting the detail behind the alternative reimbursement model. So there were sort of these circular discussions that, that, that happened around trying to manage utilization. Um, in the end, uh, I have to say, there were very, very few papers that put together a coherent, structured suggestion, suggested framework for a cure. Very few. Uh, there were only some that went so far as to make hard and fast recommendations on the cure side. I'd say 80% plus, 90% maybe even, were on diagnosing the symptoms um, and just looking at the trends and, and moaning about um, how bad the industry has been for the last 10 years. On price determination in particular, just to focus on this one element, um, because this is the one I guess that everybody's interested in when the Commission is going to make their recommendations. It's going to come down to price determination. So the first and most obvious problem with that is, as Emil pointed out and is supported by some of the work we've done, 
that what, what you're going to do on price is going to do nothing on utilization. In fact, it might have an adverse consequence on utilization. Um, if you buy into the sort of target income hypothesis, either for a facility or for a doctor, if you push prices down 20%, what do you think is going to happen to utilization if they have fixed costs that they have to cover and shareholder expectations, etc.? Um, so, I mean, for us, uh, fiddling too heavily on the price side is going to is going to be an issue. But I'm not here to give our views. Uh, the there was discussion here about again the free market. There were certainly proponents for a free market to say no, no, no. Actually, the market is working fantastically well. Um, you know, we're we're uh, we're managing to get quite good prices, um, and uh, we're making this market work. The people on the other side of the coin were saying, well, that's, that's not the same for us. Um, please, can we have some kind of collective bargaining because we are the minnows and we aren't able to get these good prices? Um, and then there was, they were quite strong and surprisingly outspoken voices, or it was surprising to come from some quarters, um, calls for price regulation, hard and fast price regulation. Um, and uh, yeah, again, the, the, I guess the things to think about in the free market side were that's it's all good and well to have a free market, but what happens if the if you get price dispersion? What happens if the you know so it's in year one it's a one percent difference because someone negotiated better? They've got a price advantage. They grow. They use that negotiating power, etc. So over time you get some price dispersion. If you follow that through, it leads to a monopoly at, at the end of the day. So is that good or bad? Who gains from those kinds of systems? From a purely price regulated point of view, um, we, there's well documented adverse unintended consequences of price regulation. What are you going to do about utilization if you control the price? Um, is it sustainable for providers to deliver care at the prices that are going to be regulated? Um, there's a risk of role player exit. And then collective bargaining, which I think if you had to lay bets or run a pool, this is probably where most people would put their money. Um, what's the process going to be? What are the rules going to be? What happens if it's an excessive price, too high or too low? Um, what, are the, um, what are the arbitrage rules, the bargaining rules? Um, so there's, there's a lot, a lot um, unknown. Uh, it really is going to be fascinating to watch. So I guess reading through all these things and understanding the ideological differences, or not understanding the ideological differences, but at least being exposed to them, sort of led me to quite a reflective mood and thinking about just, if you'll allow me to get a bit soppy since I have the microphone, I mean, just thinking about the, the, you know, the kind of press that we've been getting in South Africa the last few weeks and months. Uh, and some of that is reflected in the ideologies in the in the in the commission, um, and you know we I think we're we're at danger as a society and even in a healthcare system of fracturing to the point where we aren't prepared to listen even to other people's ideologies and entertain the discussion and debate. But from from where from where we can see, if you try to take that helicopter view and and the reviewing the the competition commission submissions allowed that, um, in fact the only way we're going to make progress is to have honest and open debate about these things, not leave it in a closed room, um, but debate these things, debate the ideological differences, um, and try to come up with solutions together. Now speaking for you know, the healthcare system and I guess our more general problems, they really are just they, they, um, symptoms of the, broader, the broad issues in broader society are very, very strongly reflected in the healthcare system. Um, and there's going to be an enormous amount of work um, to, to get the system to work effectively, both the private and the public health care system, as well as the country. Um, so I guess we have, a, we have a, a very strong and potentially very influential role to play there. Um, and I think we must uh, you know, guard our particular ideologies. We must approach them maturely. Um, we must, uh, you know, when we're engaging others w with different points of view, we must do that maturely and openly. Um, 
And yeah, have the best interests um, as our professional conduct standards. What does it say, Roseanne? The best interests of society in mind. Thank you very much. So I think I made up some time, Alex. I don't know. No? Oh, sorry. You're on time, but we started a bit late, so thanks. Uh, questions, anyone? Maybe, okay, great. Maybe, oh. maybe I'll ask something then. Um, my impression was, and I just want to check if you agree, that it was mostly defensive, so from their angle, sort of defending themselves. Um, and then I wanted to get your impression, Barry, around the balance between stating that there is a problem and stating that the problem is actually not too bad. Uh, certainly in our submission, we had to try and still position that actually it's not that bad, but there are issues. Yes. Uh, and trying to get that balance right, because yes. if we all just moan, then it doesn't look good. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, on the, on, on the first point, sure, I mean, again, it was so different in each of the submissions. When I, when I read um, some of them, it felt like I was reading sort of my 10-year-old's my diary, moaning about how she was, you know, teased at school and like nothing was, it, it, like some of them really felt incredibly, you know, woe is me. Some of them, again, were triumphant and, uh, look, this is how we're solving all of these problems. Um, so there was an extremely wide range. Um, in terms of defensive, yes, certainly a lot of the submissions had a defensive tone. I think particularly from the provider side, where they feel that a lot of attention is going to come their way uh, in terms of the price setting process and the you know, perceived drivers of cost and abusing PMBs, etc. All of those points were, you know, uh, defenses were put up for those points. Um, in terms of, yeah, not making the problem too bad, I think, yeah, if you had to put it on a scale and put the you know the dispersed uh, submissions on a scale I think they would uh, it would probably tip towards we need to do something um, you know that the system can't stay the way it is there are problems um, but uh, yeah it's not going to cataclysmically fail tomorrow I think I mean some of the political commentary was uh, you know it's unsustainable and if things carry on the way they are then in in one year's time, in two years' time, in five years' time, the system will implode. We know in practice that that doesn't really happen because this, this, things don't carry on the way they are. People buy lower plans. That you know, there, there are market natural overriding market mechanisms, irrespective of what we try to design and concoct, um, that overcome those things. We can't have a situation where, if you do the maths, um, you know, medical scheme contributions take up 50% of people's incomes at a certain point. That's just not going to happen because there will be an overarching market reaction again, irrespective of what's designed on the ground. Um, so so th there was, I think, some level of comfort there, but definitely um, an underlying urge to do something, whether it's coding or you know, improving the regulations or clarifying the regulations. There was, yeah. Thanks. Any questions? Barry, you mentioned the mandate was quite restrictive. And then you said a betting man would say that we'd come up with a, um, a method of, of setting um, collective price, bargaining. collective bargaining. Uh, how, how would that fit in with that restrictive mandate? Well, I get, what I'm saying about the restrictive mandate is there's a lot of talk about reform for the system overall, public and private. Um, and from what we can tell, they have no mandate to dabble in public sector matters whatsoever. Their mandate is completely restricted to the private sector. So when I say restrictive, that's what I mean. Within that, I think they have quite a free mandate. And really what they're going to be um, constrained there with um, is putting together a solution that will be acceptable by all the parties and no mean feat. 
Uh, on the one hand, you know, if they go price regulation, the, the court applications will follow the very next day. If they go completely free market, uh, they're not going to satisfy um, you know, some, of the, some of the urges in the submissions for the need for a more collective bargaining approach. So that's why I say on balance, to try to weigh, weigh up the stakeholders, the interests of the stakeholders. The middle ground might be going back to a collective bargaining decision. It would mean conceding that they were wrong, which they might take on the chin. I don't know. Um, but the rules and processes for that are going to be fascinating to develop. It does allow them to try to contrive a system, a new system, as opposed to the system we had previous to 2003. Um, some of those systems are, are overly cooked. You know, there's this process, and if it fails at this step, it goes to this process, and then there's this arbitration, and there's this game theory, final offer arbitration, etc. I mean, some of those things are, are nice in theory, but quite difficult to do in practice. So how that will actually manifest, I think, is going to be anyone's guess. And I'm sure if they concede to collective bargaining, the very next step is how it's going to be done will also be much debated. Thanks. Any other last question? No? Okay. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thanks,